Hi, crime junkies. It's Ashley here. And you all know how ready I am at any moment to drop down the rabbit holes of mysterious cases to look for answers. And there's actually one right now that I cannot stop spiraling about with more rabbit holes than I can count. In this season of Counterclock, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra begins investigating Doug Wag Jr.'s mysterious death after he was found struck on a strip of railroad tracks. But the more Delia has dug into this case, the stranger things have gotten. And you guys, there is truly so much going on. A string of mysterious deaths, a bank robbery gone wrong, conspiracy, corruption, and it may all be connected. You can binge all of Counterclock Season 6 right now in the Crime Junkie Fan Club, or you can listen to new episodes weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Sometimes it's challenging to connect with friends and family who aren't native English speakers. So learn their language with the most trusted language learning program, Rosetta Stone. Their efficient, immersive lessons are used and beloved by millions. The True Accent feature even provides feedback on your pronunciation. Learn on the go with convenient, flexible, and customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash crimejunkie. Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And today I have two stories for you. This episode is about a mystery that has confounded investigators for 20 years, one that they're still seeking answers for today. But we also have another mini episode in our feed today outlining another unsolved case. So make sure you don't miss that one as well. But this is the story of the Short family. On the morning of Thursday, August 15, 2002, this guy named Chris Thompson leaves his motel room in Oak Level, Virginia, and he heads down the street to his boss's house, this guy named Michael Short. Now, he's not just going over for a visit. Michael actually runs his business out of his house, MS Mobile Home Movers. And Chris had been there the night before helping him with vehicle repairs in the yard. So it's about 9 a.m. when he rolls up. There's no sign of Michael, or anyone for that matter, out in the yard. This is pretty unusual, but you know, Chris was there till like midnight the night before. So maybe Michael is asleep. Maybe he's just in the house or the attached carport getting something. So Chris goes to check the carport. And that is where he finds Michael. Except Michael isn't working away or drinking coffee or doing any of the things that Chris might expect on a Thursday morning. Michael is laying unresponsive on a couch with what looks like a single gunshot wound to the head. 
Chris wastes no time calling 911, and authorities quickly arrive at the scene and do an immediate search of the house. And when they do, they discover Michael's wife, Mary, in her bed, also with what appears to be a single gunshot wound to the head. But as they go from room to room clearing the house, the pit in their stomach grows when they open the door to a little girl's room. They had learned from Chris that Michael and Mary have a nine-year-old daughter named Jennifer, and authorities are absolutely dreading what they might find in her room. And for the briefest of moments, they actually breathe a sigh of relief because they don't find a third body in there. In fact, the room is completely empty. But of course, that relief is fleeting as investigators begin to wonder, okay, if Jennifer isn't here, then where is she? Once the house is fully cleared, police are able to make some important observations, most notably the fact that there isn't really any signs of a struggle anywhere in the house. And I mean, you would obviously expect to see a struggle in a case where you have two parents at home with a nine-year-old daughter. I mean, I would fight like hell if I even had a tiny chance to protect my child. So investigators quickly begin to suspect that maybe Michael and Mary were killed in their sleep. And... This was a little hard to wrap my head around at first because I would think that the first shot would likely wake one of them up. But here's the thing. You see, the house itself is in this pretty odd location. It's like quite literally on a four-lane highway. Like there aren't really any other houses around. I mean, there's a convenience store nearby. There's a motel, sometimes a flea market, but it's not really like a residential area because there's so much traffic going by, which maybe that makes it difficult to hear a gunshot. But with Jennifer missing, investigators do wonder if maybe she heard what was going on and she managed to escape into the woods behind the house. So their hope is that maybe they're going to find her hiding out there. And that's when the search for her begins. Investigators from the local sheriff's office, along with the FBI, state and city police, and even investigators from North Carolina descend on Oak Level over the course of Thursday and Friday, searching every inch of the area. And I mean, we're talking woods, the house, and everything in between. Now, in this search, they don't find Jennifer or really anything useful in the woods, but there is some evidence in the house. They find two spent 22 caliber casings where the bodies were found, and they collect a number of other items, including a cell phone, some business documents, and a computer disk. Investigators also find a pretty significant amount of cash, like $485, just lying out on the kitchen counter. So that at least helps narrow down the motive a little bit. Like, they know this isn't some kind of robbery. The only other clue that they gather from the home is that according to an article in the Washington Post, the phone line to the house had been cut, which shows at least a little bit of premeditation and planning. And there's this moment, again, after they see the phone lines, after they realize this isn't a robbery, that there is just fear in everyone's hearts. Because if the killer wasn't after money, if they weren't after material things, and if Jennifer didn't run to hide out in the woods— then maybe Jennifer was the motive. Maybe she was targeted and taken with whomever killed her parents. Or maybe she was just collateral damage if someone was after her parents. Police issue an Amber Alert, and by Friday, they push Jennifer's photo and description out to all of the local and regional media. And tips do begin pouring in from all over. I mean, even as far away as Missouri, apparently. But there is nothing particularly concrete at first. 
And again, because of the location, it's not like they have this deep well of eyewitnesses that they can tap into. I mean, there are almost no other houses nearby. There is that convenience store, but the entrance to it faces away from the Shorts' house. So even if you are coming or going from there, any surveillance footage, it pretty much would, like, face away from the house. So the only thing police could really do was look closely at people the family knew. Now that they're likely dealing with an abduction, statistically, that's where they should look. And at a minimum, maybe the people closest to the Shorts can point them in the right direction. Police also interviewed Chris multiple times since he was the last to see the family alive the night before. And to all accounts, he's very cooperative. Even though they're not considering him as a suspect or even a person of interest, they don't necessarily rule him out either. Because at this point, no one is getting ruled out until Jennifer is found. But they do try and probe Chris for more information around Michael's business. As I mentioned, he operated his own mobile home moving business. And This wasn't the kind of business where he employed the same people year after year. People kind of came, they helped out for a bit, then they left. So investigators are trying to figure out if maybe someone who worked for him might have held a grudge for some reason, or if there could have been any other kind of business-related reason for this horrific crime. But Chris doesn't seem to have any leads, any idea of who would want to do this either. So investigators move on to Michael and Mary's friends and family. Michael actually had three adult sons from previous marriages, and police talked to them as well. Michael and Mary were also trying to sell their house, so investigators talked to their realtor to get a sense of who might have been in and out of the house for viewings, like that kind of thing. But they still can't seem to uncover any clues that might lead them to Jennifer, or even a motive. And although this is still just within the first day or so after finding Michael and Mary's bodies, authorities are very much aware that with every passing minute, their chances of finding Jennifer get slimmer and slimmer. By the time the weekend rolls around, investigators begin to wind down their physical search in the area around Michael and Mary's home so they can shift their focus. Because if Jennifer's not hiding on her own, then someone took her. And with that four-lane highway right outside the family's door, I mean, I think they're safe in assuming that she could easily be anywhere at this point. So it's time to just chase down tips and see if they lead investigators to her to anywhere. And at this point, there's a lot of tips to go through. The case has become so popular that they're now getting tips from as far away as California, Florida, and Kansas. They even have psychics calling in information. And investigators are acting on every single tip. But every single one they're able to eliminate. There are some that come in that raise their hopes more than others and require a little more vetting, like one that they get early on the following week when they hear reports that several people have seen Jennifer in North Carolina accompanied by a man with a gun. But in the end, it seems to go nowhere. But that one's like wild to me because, again, this isn't some random person saying they saw Jennifer. It was a number of people saying they saw her in the same place. All of these people are reporting it. So, okay, if it's not her, who is it? And who is this man? But that's a question we never get the answer to. Days continue to go by with no breaks in the case. Police do tell reporters that they're looking at a few people who could be suspects, but otherwise they don't really say much at this point. They try and provide some general tips to the public that are basically like, here are some signs that someone you know might have committed a double murder and kidnapped a nine-year-old. But they're the kinds of things that like any good crime junkie here would know to look out for. Like, does a person you know seem to have like this oddly intense interest in the investigation? Did someone you know leave town without warning? That kind of thing. 
Whether it's their pleas to the public or something else, the police do get a couple of other leads that pop up over the next few weeks that are interesting. Like one where police get a tip that back in 1992, so this would have been 10 years earlier, Mary had, I guess, been harassed by a man who seemed to be kind of obsessed with her. She was working at an industrial plant at the time, and it got so bad that this guy actually had to be, like, forcibly removed from the premises one day by her co-workers. Now, she didn't actually file a police report, and it doesn't seem like she had any further contact with this guy, really. But it is something. So they look into it, they investigate, they talk to the guy, but nothing comes of it. The next development in the case doesn't come until early September, when investigators receive another tip. And I'm not actually sure where they receive it, like if it comes through a phone call or during an interview, but they hear that there's a possibility that Jennifer might not actually be Michael's biological daughter. And without literally anything else to go on, I think investigators start to wonder, like, if this is true, what if Jennifer's biological father was involved in her disappearance somehow? Like, maybe he didn't know about Jennifer at all, then somehow found out, it set him off, he decided to kidnap her, murder Mary and Michael, that kind of thing. Like, again, all complete conjecture at this point. But basically, they're thinking that conjecture could be better than nothing. So they actually perform a paternity test. But investigators discover that Jennifer is 100% the biological child of both Mary and Michael. And so the next day, investigators announce the results to the media. Kind of. You see, they only tell the media that the test confirmed that Jennifer is Mary's biological child. According to an Associated Press report published by the Daily Press, investigators say that they don't want to declare the paternity results publicly because it could impact the investigation. Basically, their thinking here is that it could still be the case that whoever kidnapped Jennifer thinks that he is her biological father and that if he were to find out somehow that that's not the case, it could potentially cause them to harm Jennifer. But them not releasing the paternity really upsets Michael's family. I mean, again, they don't have the kind of context that I just gave you at this point. It's just kind of put out there by police that they're keeping it secret. And it puts this weird and unfair question mark over Michael's head when his family is still grappling with his murder. I don't love the tactic here. I, I can't figure out why they wouldn't loop the family in. And it doesn't seem to even do much for the case. Like, there are no arrests. There are no new suspects because of this. There is nothing for nearly six weeks. But it's at that point that the case finally does break wide open. You see, 30 miles away, at a home in Stoneville, North Carolina, a man discovers something completely unexpected right in his front yard. On September 25th, Eddie Albert is outside his home with his two dogs when he notices something a bit odd. There's this pond that basically runs through Eddie's front yard and his dogs have been like playing, exploring around. And when they return to Eddie, he notices that one of the dogs seems to be playing with what looks like maybe a turtle shell. But when he takes a closer look at it, Eddie realizes that this definitely is not a turtle shell. This is a large piece of bone. And suddenly, he remembers a few other odd instances over the past few days at his house. Like when he found what looked to be a brown wig on his property, but he just threw it out. Or when his daughter discovered what she thought was a set of animal teeth. So to be safe, he contacts the authorities and they come out to search the property. And when they do, they find several bone fragments in the pond. 
And when they come across a skull, they know without a doubt that these are no animal bones. They are human. Of course, even though it's across state lines, Eddie's house isn't actually that far from the Schwartz house. So everyone is immediately wondering, could these be Jennifer's remains? They do a preliminary test by comparing hair samples. And just based on that, their initial finding is that this is not a match for Jennifer. But that's not always the most reliable testing method. Especially because at this point, I don't even think they have enough bone fragments to make a definitive assessment as to who this person is, like in terms of size, sex, that kind of thing. So they spend the next few days searching the area around the pond and the house. And within about six days, they find leg bones, pieces of jaw, and 16 teeth. By the end of the search, their assessment actually changes. Although they plan to do DNA testing, it is clear that the skeletal remains are those of a nine-year-old child who was shot once in the head. Even without the DNA, everyone fears this is Jennifer. Now, the first DNA test results come back inconclusive, but they run the test again, and on October 4th, a press conference is held to announce that the skeletal remains do, in fact, belong to Jennifer Short. Now, the only sort of positive development I can see here is that the investigators are finally able to clear up all this business around who Jennifer's biological father is. According to a CNN transcript of the press conference, investigators very clearly state that Michael and Mary are both Jennifer's biological parents without a doubt. And they even explain their reasoning as to why they kept some of that under wraps and they apologize for any distress that their tactics might have caused the family. But at this press conference, journalists start asking questions about another development in the case based on some search warrants that were filed. You see, investigators searching the area around the house also discovered a mobile home parked about a mile away from where Jennifer's remains were found. And after looking into it, they learned that that belonged to a guy named Gary Bowman. And Gary Bowman is not a name that's new to investigators. It turns out that earlier in the investigation, a tip had come in from Gary Bowman's landlord. And the landlord told police that Gary talked to them about paying a man in Virginia to move his mobile home, which I'm sure you remember is exactly what Michael Short did for a living. And he said that he paid a man in Virginia. But at this point, when Gary's talking to his landlord, he's super upset because he said that the mobile home hadn't been moved. And he's like, listen, I paid this guy. So he's either going to have to do the job that I paid him to do or return the money. And if he didn't, Gary said that he was going to have to kill him. But that's not even all. The landlord also told police that he had seen Gary with a gun on the day that the shorts were murdered. And the day after that, Gary and his mobile home were gone. So... Like I said, this had all become public when police filed that search warrant for Gary's mobile home. But investigators are not calling Gary a suspect or even a person of interest at that point. They simply describe him as a witness. So with that search warrant that they got, investigators thoroughly searched the mobile home as well as the house that he had been renting from this landlord. Now, there was no evidence that Gary had been there recently, but that doesn't mean that they left the search empty-handed. As they were searching Gary's homes, investigators come across this map, which, sure, not exactly unexpected, especially for someone who owns a mobile home, and especially back in 2002, before we all had Google Maps in our pockets. But when they take a closer look at the map, there is something unexpected on it. 
the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams, or timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Spring is about fresh starts. That could mean starting a new venture or switching things up on your website. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Use Squarespace to design a website, engage with your audience, and sell anything from products to time all in one place. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. Accept credit cards, PayPal, Apple Pay, and in certain countries, give customers the chance to buy now and pay later with Afterpay and Clearpay. Selling content on your website? Add a paywall to sell memberships or courses or sell downloadable files. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash crimejunkie to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. On the map, the very piece of highway where Michael, Mary, and Jennifer lived, right where Michael and Mary's bodies were found, has been marked in red. When authorities go looking for Gary, they find that he's already in custody, but not in North Carolina or Virginia or even the United States. No, Gary has been arrested over 4,000 miles away near the Arctic Circle in Canada's Northwest Territories. You see, Gary had moved to Canada in August, not long after the murders. According to an AP report in the Daily Press, on August 31st, he was in a car accident while driving under the influence and he was placed under arrest there. And he ended up being charged with impaired driving and released from custody. But I think that charge must have kept him on authorities' radar because he's arrested again on October 3rd at the request of Citizenship and Immigration Canada because they've learned that when he entered the country originally, he failed to disclose that he had a criminal record for older impaired driving charges, which is against Canada's immigration laws. So anyway, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police are holding him on these charges, and eventually investigators down in Virginia and North Carolina learn about this, and they're like, um, hey, Canada, you mind letting us chat with the guy? The next few weeks are just kind of this, like, bureaucratic back and forth. Like, they're trying to figure out if investigators from the U.S. should travel to Yellowknife and interview Gary there, how long it's going to take to process the impaired driving charges that he's facing from back in August. They're figuring out whether or not he's going to be deported, what evidence can be moved from Canada to the U.S. It's just this massive headache on all sides. But 
Ultimately, it's decided that the impaired driving charges against Gary are just going to be dropped, and he will simply be deported back to the U.S., at which point investigators there are going to interview him. Now, all of this takes a few weeks, during which the media is following the whole process closely, and reporters are starting to talk to people who knew Gary. And despite the search warrant, despite that weird map, despite the timing of his move out of the country, despite all of this sussiness around Gary. His friends are not at all convinced that he was involved in the murder of the Short family. According to an Associated Press report filed in the Star News Online, his friends basically say that Gary suffered from a severe alcohol use disorder to the point where he was drinking a case of beer every day. And one of his friends says that he was with Gary on the day of the murders. And when they parted ways in the evening, he says Gary was so inebriated that there was no way he could have driven to Virginia, committed the murders, abducted Jennifer, especially without leaving any forensic evidence behind. And his friends also add that his move out of the country wasn't related at all to the murders. They say that he had actually been planning to move for a while and had often talked about wanting to live in the far north. So, I mean, basically, they're saying this is all a big misunderstanding, and that's pretty much what Gary says as well when he's back in the United States and interviewed by investigators. He's held in custody as a material witness, and he decides to undergo questioning without any legal representation. He's apparently very cooperative, and he says that this conversation with his landlord never happened. Though, just a note, the landlord did take a polygraph and pass, but I don't know what to make of it. You know, I don't trust polygraphs. Also, there is the thought that if Gary had this conversation while he was intoxicated, maybe he doesn't remember Like, there's this conflicting narrative situation here. So police ask him about the map, because that's super weird, right? But Gary says he has an answer about that red X on the map, too. He says that it's possible that his ex-wife had added it to mark the location of an antiques dealer. Which, I don't know if you remember I mentioned, but there was this, like, flea market that would sometimes be by the Shorts house, so that kind of checks out. Now, there's nothing definitive tying Gary to the murders. So after that initial questioning, Gary is released from custody. But he's told that he has to stay in the area because he's going to be before a grand jury for further questioning. That happens around mid-November. And ultimately, with nothing concrete in terms of hard physical evidence, Gary is released without indictment and never charged in connection with these murders at all. I mean, it goes cold fast. Years and years go by with no real update in the case at all. Tips do continue to come in occasionally, but nothing that leads to a break. And in an effort to bring the case back to the public's attention and maybe get some new leads, in March of 2009, the FBI releases a sketch of a man that they say they'd like to question in connection with the murders. According to Paul Garber's reporting in the Winston-Salem Journal, witnesses apparently saw this man sitting in a white single-cab truck near the Shorts house at around the time of the murders. We're actually going to post a sketch of him on our blog post, and it's going to be in our app so you can take a look for yourself. But he was described by witnesses as being in his late 40s at the time of the murders and having a weathered complexion. Investigators also announced that they're chasing some other new leads. It turns out that they've learned Michael had been planning to move his business and life to South Carolina, which explains why they were trying to sell their house. And so they wanted to speak with anyone that he might have tried to connect with in the South Carolina area. But even though they put this out, again, the case mostly seems to just go quiet, with years simply passing by. 
Every once in a while, investigators do continue to re-examine old clues, sometimes even with new technology. By October 2018, they have conducted over 4,000 interviews trying to uncover what happened to this family. And every year on the anniversary, when locals hold a memorial motorcycle ride through the town as a fundraiser for their community, they do receive new tips. And it's not like every tip is groundbreaking or anything like that. I mean, one is simply from someone who says that they saw the shorts at a Burger King drive through at like 11 p.m. on the night of their murder. So interesting because, you know, that's something that investigators had gone nearly 20 years without knowing. But all these small pieces aren't going anywhere, though maybe they could add to a big break somewhere down the line. Like these little puzzle pieces that on their own don't mean much, but when put together could show a bigger picture. I'm not sure if there was any evidence collected that could be re-examined or retested today. But if the killer left anything behind, then the chance to get answers from that was lost for good in February of 2019 when the house where Mary and Michael's bodies were found unexpectedly burned to the ground. Though... Interestingly, or maybe not, the fire has never been officially linked to their murders. As recently as October of 2021, a task force was relaunched to investigate the murders once more. And the people involved say that they're still optimistic that this case could be solved. In fact, in a podcast series from Fox 8 called Who Killed Jennifer Short, the current sheriff working the case today says that they have a narrow list of two to three suspects who they think might be involved but they still need more information before moving forward. They need information from people who might have witnessed something, anything around the time of these murders. So that's you, Crime Junkies. If you or anyone you know has information that could help this investigation, call Henry County Crime Stoppers at 276-632-7463 and help bring justice and closure to Michael, Mary, and Jennifer Short. And don't forget that we dropped another episode today of another unsolved case we need your help with. You can go tune into that right now. You can find all of our source material and pictures for this episode on our website, crimejunkiepodcast.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Crime Junkie Podcast. And I'm going to be back next week with a brand new episode. But again, don't forget there's another new episode available for you right now. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support anytime you don't have to hide how you feel 
Saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Save big- 